the first of which is the narrative drama of the epistle to Philemon. And you have the handout for that. And second, we want to begin to look at the basic structure of the epistle. And this will be the kind of simple uh, outline of structure that I will present. And next week we will go back to detail that structure and we'll spend uh, more time analyzing and expanding upon that basic structural outline. So, uh, let's begin with the narrative drama. With the assumption that we treat Philemon as a drama, a dramatic event, at least the context of what is found in the epistle. And we begin with the dramatis personae, which is the Latin term, persons of the drama. Who are the persons in our letter drama? Spit it out. Well, he said Paul. Paul is one. Who else? Philemon is another. Who else? Onesimus is a third. And who else? No. Jesus. Christ is the fourth. Yes. <clears throat> These are the chief persons. Now, it's not that uh, Timothy is meant not mentioned or Archippus or others. <clears throat> They're more or less minor characters, <clears throat> though they're important to the background, and we've already taken some time. We've taken two weeks to look at their biographies, so we have something of their character in mind. <clears throat> but nonetheless, the four major figures here are Paul, Philemon, Onesimus, and the Lord Jesus. <clears throat> now, every drama has a setting or location. Our drama has two settings or two locations. Okay? <clears throat> What's the first location of our drama? Rome. Very good. And it's mentioned <clears throat> by implication five times in this epistle. Wherever he mentions prison, imprisonment, or prisoner, verses 1, 9, 10, 13 and 23, he's referring to his, his Roman incarceration. And the second setting, or the second location, Colossae, very good. Now, we don't get that from this letter per se. We noted that in the background to Epaphras and to Onesimus in Colossians 4. Verses 9 and 12, if you want to make a note of that conjunction. All right, now, Aristotle. What can you tell me about Aristotle, Randy? He was a philosopher who was taught by... What kind of a philosopher? What country was he from? Greek. He's a Greek philosopher. When did he live? Yeah, very, very good. Fourth century B.C. Okay. <clears throat> What's he famous for? Training Alexander the Great. Training Alexander the Great. <clears throat> very good. 
All right. Now, he wrote a famous book, which you can actually read on the Internet, called The Poetics. And in Section 7, or Part 7, of that Poetics, he indicates that a narrative or a drama is composed of three parts, the beginning, middle, and end. Now, that may seem so obvious as to be not worth mentioning, but it is a very important part of literary analysis and is used by all literature experts as a foundation for analyzing a piece of literature, rhetoric, uh, poetry, poetry, etc., even plays. It's obvious, but Aristotle is the first one to kind of lay it down in print and analyze Greek tragedies on the basis of the paradigm. All right, so we borrow from Aristotle this poetic, that is how to read. Poetics is not about poetry per se. It's how, how you read a text, how you read a passage, how you read a book. And we'll break down the epistle of Philemon into the beginning, middle, and end. So in the beginning, we have two scenes. So we'll consider this like a drama on stage, and scene one begins in verses 18 and 19. Now, as you look at those two verses, what is being described there? Very good. It's the offense. Whether it's particularly stealing, we'll leave that aside for the time being. But it's the offense that has precipitated this letter in measure or in part. All right, so some offense has occurred. And where did it occur? What's the setting for this offense? Colossae, okay? It happened in Colossae. And is that event described in verses 18 and 19 contemporaneous with Paul's circumstances when he writes this letter? No. No. It has happened before. So that scene one of this drama is a what? It's a flashback. Very good. Flashback. Now, how many of you have seen It's a Wonderful Life? It is one of the all-time favorite movies. It's an excellent film. Oh, yes, it's got a little shaky theology, but <clears throat> you read, you're exposed to other things that have shaky theology. <clears throat> but it is great. Christmas story, and Jimmy Stewart and Donna Reed are superb in it. Just a wonderful, feel-good movie. And uh, <clears throat> consequently, Frank Capra, who made it, uses an effective device in that film for the flashback 
of George Bailey of Bedford Falls. Now, what does he do? What does Capra do? Those of you who are It's a Wonderful Life fans. Marge, you're smiling. You're not familiar. You haven't seen it lately? That's a, that's a, that's a Christmas tradition at the Denison House. <laughs> Go ahead. But as he describes the mission for the angel, can you tell us the story? I don't in, in, in part. It's been too long since you've watched it. Art, have you watched it more recently than your wife? Probably not. No, probably not. You need, you need to have a movie night and watch It's a Wonderful Life. Maybe maybe I should have a movie night and invite you all over to watch A Wonderful Light. I don't have enough room for all of you, unfortunately. Uh, you had your chance. I'll come back to you. Okay, what's, what's Capra do with respect to Flash? And incidentally, this is not just Capra. Movie directors and screenwriters will do this all the time, and book writers will do it. But what does Capra do? Who? Who? I think it's the bank guy who makes the loan to the business. Yeah, it's George Bailey, Jimmy Stewart. Yeah, Capra creates, and actually it's based upon a a novel. Uh, Capra creates a flashback in which what would Bedford Falls be like if George Bailey had never been born? It's a wonderful life. He was born, okay, and he lived a wonderful life. All right. So, effectively creating an element of suspense, but also an element of complete antithetical reality by that flashback in which the man's life doesn't exist and so the effects of it don't filter down into the life of the town. It's quite powerful. So, particularly the cemetery scene. Uh, Anyway... Well, if I haven't whetted your appetite to go out and borrow It's Some Wonderful Life or whatever, uh, I've failed. <laughs> yes, you can, you can watch it on TV at Christmas time, too. But it's, it's the kind of film that you keep going back to uh, and realizing there's a great deal of drama and there's a great deal of characterization in that story, which is really quite beautiful. It's well done. And, and, and Stuart... It's just brilliant. Uh, I mean, he had to be. He was from Indiana, Pennsylvania, right up the road from Ligonier, PA. His first Oscar was in his grandfather. He was raised by a man whose father had a hardware store in Indiana, Pennsylvania, where Indiana State University is. Excuse me why I excursed about uh, Pennsylvania. But at any rate, his first Oscar, his father, he gave it to his father. His father put it in the front window of his hardware store. He was so proud of his son. Uh, <coughs> All right. Now, this technique of looking back and filling in the blanks, filling in the gaps, this is exactly what we've done here. We filled in the blanks. We filled in the gap. Okay? Paul starts writing this letter, but we don't know why he's writing this letter until we come to verses 18 and 19. And now we learn that, okay, now from 18 and 19, we flash back to what the original event that precipitated this letter was some offense of Onesimus. All right, so scene two.
Okay, this scene set in the location that Paul inhabits as he writes the letter. Fill in the blanks. He is what? He's in prison at Rome. Very good. All right, now we fast forward it, okay? We fast forward it to verse 1. So we started with verse 18. Now we're going back to verse 1 in terms of the order of the drama. And what has happened since scene 1, which we just talked about above? First of all, Onesimus has done what? He has run away, yes. He has run away from Philemon, his master, and from Colossae, his hometown, shall we say. He's a runaway. Now, how do you know that? Randy, you answered the question. How do you know that? We don't. Everybody's assuming. Oh, I think you can do better than that if you read the text. How do you know that? Where does it say so? Verse 15. Verse 15? Okay. Any other, any other verses? How about verse 10? And verse 12. I have sent him back to you. So he's run away. And that brings us to the next section of the drama, the middle portion. So... This drama has begun in Colossae with some offense which has caused Onesimus to run away from his master. All right, now what's the setting of scene one of our middle portion? Is it the same as scene two above? In prison at Rome. Now, in scene two of the beginning, Onesimus ended up where? With, with Paul in Rome. Okay? But the drama continues. What happens to him when he comes to Paul in Rome? Randy? He becomes a believer. He is converted. He becomes a believer. Now, how do you know that? Paul says so. Where? Uh, verse 10. Very good. That's the strongest statement about Onesimus' change of heart, his conversion. However, if you notice verse 16, Paul calls him what? Brother. A brother, okay? Which means a brother in Christ. All right, so the drama has now advanced to the change of heart, the change in status of Onesimus. He is a brother in Christ. He has been born again by the work of the Spirit of the Lord Jesus and by the work of the testimony of the Apostle Paul. All right, now, scene two... 
of the middle of our dramatic story. Paul determines to take action. What does he do? He sends him back in verse 12. He returns him. All right? So he's sending him back to whom? Philemon. And he's sending him back where? To Colossae. Okay? Why does he do this? That he might be useful. He might be useful. Good. Why else? From verses 5 to 7, what do you deduce is Paul's motive for sending him back? Okay. Okay. What are the words in verses five and seven that would suggest that? How about faith and love? Now, it's faith and love of Philemon to the saints, but Paul is placing Onesimus in the same paradigm. He's placing him in the same dramatic expression. Namely, he wants him to go back as an expression of his own faith and love to Philemon and to the church in Colossae. So what he asks of Philemon or commends in Philemon, he's going to commend in Onesimus by implication. And therefore, to repair the breach, he wants Onesimus to go back as a witness to the faith and love of Christ that Philemon already enjoys and that the church which meets in Philemon's house also enjoys. Now, he sends something with him. Onesimus takes something with him when he goes back to Colossae. What does he have? He has this epistle. He has what you're reading. He has in his hand a copy of the Greek text of this letter to hand to Philemon which will then be read to the church. And the church, in receiving it, at Colossae, will begin the process of canonization or authentication of an apostolic epistle, and it will end up in our Bibles today. Okay, any questions about the beginning and middle of our narrative analysis. All right, now that brings us to the end of a drama. Yes, Scott, question? Can you uh, strengthen that a bit, the connection between You'll have to wait until I detail it in the verses, but uh, in the second part tonight, I'll make a kind of structural paradigm for that. And out of that structural paradigm, 
I'm looking for mirror reciprocity. But thank you for anticipating me, and I'll try to satisfy you later on. Anything else on the beginning and the middle? All right, we come to the end section then, the end of our drama. We actually have no end from the text of the New Testament itself. We have to imagine the end, the conclusion based upon Paul's letter. All right, so nothing wrong with imagination, nothing wrong about thinking creatively or using our imaginations to ponder what may be the end of this drama. We're going to suggest two scenes, actually three, in the conclusion of this uh, narrative. We're going to imagine Onesimus fulfilling scene two of the middle section of our drama. Okay, He fulfills scene two of the middle. So the setting is now what? Colossae. Onesimus does what? He returns. Very good. Called the beloved. Okay. With the letter. Okay. Part. I can imagine that he admits his mistake. Very good. He apologizes. He declares his repentance. Verse 18, particular. And also verses 11 and 12, implicitly. Okay, now, scene two of this conclusion would be to ask what is Philemon's response to the letter from Paul? Very good. Very good. In verse 16, he would receive him as a Christian brother, even as Paul asks him to. Verse 17, he would welcome him. He would welcome him to the church, right? He would welcome him to the church. Keep in mind that this church meets in Philemon's house, and consequently on the basis of Paul's commendation and Onesimus' repentance and testimony, he would be welcome in the fellowship of the church with Philemon, his master. Now, the third scene comes from verse 22. And that's the very end of our drama. What occurs there? Everybody looks happy there. <laughs> this is not a fairy tale. Paul is going to check out to see if I'm happy. Yes, Paul is going to come to visit. Now, whether his intention is to check up or whether his intention is to experience the very fellowship of this reconciliation that he has been a part of, we cannot tell. So, there are a number of possibilities here. 
but he is going, he's preparing to come to that house church. He's preparing to come to meet Philemon in that house church, preparing to come to meet Onesimus in that house church as well. All right, now, um, let's lay out some relationships of character. Remember, on the first page of your outline, we labeled the dramatis personae Paul, Philemon, Onesimus, and Christ. So let's lay out some of these relationships as they come from the dramatic nature of this epistle. Let's begin with Paul, since we listed him first on page one. Does Paul have a master? Who is it? Yes. It is Jesus Christ. Paul has a master, the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> is Paul a slave? Yes. yes, he is. He, in fact, calls himself a bond slave. Now, not in this epistle. He's a bond slave of whom? Christ again. Very good. All right. <clears throat> he does call himself a bond slave in Romans 1 1, Galatians 1 10, Philippians 1 1. And Titus 1.1. We may ask ourselves, as we look at verse 1 of Philemon, why he does not call himself a bond slave here. Rather, he calls himself a prisoner. You can ponder that for a little bit. We will take that on in detail uh, when we get to the first verse. All right, so the relationship of Paul is to a master whom he serves, of whom he describes himself the bond slave, Jesus Christ. All right, what about Philemon? He is a master. Is he a master in Christ? He is. He is a master in Christ. We have noticed the emphasis upon this en Christo formula in this letter, and Philemon is part of that formula. He is a master in Christ. Now, what about Onesimus, the slave? He is a slave of Philemon, is he not? And as he returns, he's a slave to Philemon in Christ. In Christ, which means that when we chose Christ as the fourth figure of this epistle, we did so intentionally because not only is he the central person in the whole Christian faith, the central person in Paul's faith, central person in Paul's letters, but he's the central person in all of the lives of the main characters in this epistle. And that in Christ relationship, we cannot forget as we study the details of this letter. We can't forget it as we understand the drama of this letter. We cannot take them out of the fold of being in Christ. That is the wonderful testimony of this letter. It is the wonderful experience of Philemon and Onesimus, as well as Paul and others in this letter, with the exception of Demas, it is the undergirding foundation 
of how these characters interact. They relate to one another. They commune with one another. They interact with one another. They live with one another in Christ. That is what defines their lives. Any questions about the outline? That is correct. If he hadn't been sent into the world, that is correct. All right, now, we examined the narrative dramatically. And we used this epistle as a dramatic narrative reading. Now, I want to go back and look at this narrative formally. Not dramatically, but formally. And once again, reflect upon the letter with respect to formal dramatic categories. What do I mean by that? Formally speaking, a narrative consists of a sequence of events in order of occurrence. A sequential order, which also allows for analepsis or flashback. Now, this pattern is famously featured in narratives which begin in medias race. Now, that's another Latin phrase. Anyone know what it means in medias race? In the middle of things. So, the flashback pattern occurs, or the analeptic pattern occurs, in a narrative in which you begin in the middle. Now, John Milton's Paradise Lost is a perfect example of a poetic epic which begins in medias res, in the middle of things. Does anyone know where Milton begins Paradise Lost, what is the setting of the first book of Paradise Lost? Time of Christ, I'm going to guess. No. Hell? Hell. It is set in hell. And who is in hell in that setting in Milton's epic? March? Satan and his angels, yes, pandemonium, all the demons of hell are there. All right, so Milton begins with the angels in hell. That's, he begins in the middle of things. And then he works backwards to how they got there. And then having worked backwards to how they got there, then he moves forward to their attack upon man in the Garden of Eden. So, Milton's Paradise Lost is a perfect example of this narrative pattern, this formal pattern of beginning a drama in the middle middle of things and then going back to fill in the details. Now, there's another famous movie example here. Uh, You're obviously realizing that my wife and I like good movies. Good movies. There are good movies, and and we look hard and fast for them. Uh, 
All right. Now, we mentioned Capra doing this type of thing in It's a Wonderful Life. There's probably the number one movie of all time, which is Casablanca, which also does the same thing. Now, in that movie, which opens in Morocco during the Second World War, Humphrey Bragg Bogart plays a man named Rick who has a cafe in Morocco. But you don't know how he's gotten there when the movie opens, and you don't know why he's there, and you don't know what has happened in order to bring him there. And the film then develops that background reflection out of the in medias race that is in the middle of him being uh, working this cafe, owning this cafe in Morocco, and characters come into that cafe which create the flashback paradigm, the flashback reflection. And one of those characters is Ingrid Bergman, who comes in as uh, the, the character Ilsa in the drama. And we find out, as the story unfolds, that in fact, she knew Rick in Paris during the resistance of the Second World War. And she ends up in Casablanca in his cafe in Morocco. And so there's an air of mystery about it. There's also an air of romance about it. <clears throat> And, of course, you've got the contrast of the Nazi occupation and so on in the background as well. Now, here, it's with, with Casablanca, it's not so much, shall we say, taking a person out of the story, taking his life out of the story. It's a putting a person into the story in terms of the full characterization of that individual. You don't know all about Humphrey Bogart when he appears on, on the camera in the first place. You don't know all about Ingrid Bergman when she appears in the first place. This all has to be fit together. The mystery has to be resolved. The identities and the characterization have to be displayed. And that's one of the reasons this movie remains one of the top movies of all time. The way those actors portrayed the characterization of the persons they were playing drew you in to understanding who they were and why they were in the places they were in. It's quite well done. <clears throat> All right, so <clears throat> this this feature of and medios race can play a powerful role in good cinema. All right, now, the message of the narrative makes up the plot. So now we're thinking of the formal character of sequential order and the message of that sequential order, namely the plot of the narrative. That's the theme or motif of the work. The plot is assembled or built up by characterization, imagery, and particularly conflict, which in Aristotle's poetics, is the beginning of the action in the motif or the theme or the plot, the developing of the action, which is the middle of the plot, and the conclusion of the action, which is the end of the plot. In other words, you are pro providing this telescoping sequence of advancing action by way of characterization, imagery, 
and crisis or conflict. All right, now, in the epistle to Philemon, we begin and medios race. When you read the first verse, you are in the middle of things. Paul himself writes out of Aristotle's flashback technique. Now, I'm not saying he did that intentionally, but nonetheless, that's how it works out. Paul is in prison, and he flashes back to what has occurred before he got into prison with respect to the individuals he addresses in this epistle. Okay, now the plot of this letter deepens or the plot thickens as Onesimus joins Paul in prison where he is wonderfully converted. Now here I want you to notice something in terms of formal narrative characterization, formal narrative development. The plot of the epistle to Philemon. Yes, we can talk about a plot here. The plot of the epistle to Philemon unfolds by means of contrastive characterization. Contrastive characterization. A reverse paradigm. What do I mean by that? What Philemon once was in contrast to what Philemon now is. That is a contrastive characterization paradigm which is part of the motif of this letter, which is part of the plot of this letter. It is plot part of the action sequence in this letter. What about Onesimus? <clears throat> Contrastive characterization. What Onesimus once was in contrast to what he now is. Reverse paradigm. What about Paul? What Paul once was implicitly, but what Paul now is, it is, in fact, out of that reverse characterization of the apostle that he can identify with the reverse characterization of Philemon and Onesimus. And what about our fourth character? What about Christ? What Christ now is, not what he once was. What Christ now is. It's very interesting that in this epistle, there is no reflection upon what Christ once did. It is what Christ now is. And that is a profound underscoring of the impact of the risen Christ upon the life of this community. All right, now, a couple more things. The plot of this epistle climaxes in Paul's appeal to Philemon in verses 9 and 10. And do you notice that that word appeal appears in each of those two verses? This is a double, emphatic, climactic plea. Why a double appeal? 
Because it's going to two characters. That's why. It's doubled because of the characterization, which is the focus of its plea and appeal. This plot also climaxes in Paul's identification with Onesimus. In verse 17, Paul says, If you regard me a partner, accept him. Paul identifies with Onesimus. Your regard for him is as your regard for me. Your regard for me as is a regard for him. He identifies with the slave. Third, verse 18. Here Paul does something quite profound. Paul substitutes for Onesimus. If he has wronged you, put it to my account. I will take his place. Charge me. Lay it to my ledger. Paul substitutes for Onesimus. And in verse 22, Paul promises to come to Colossae. Paul promises to come to Colossae. It is a veritable apostolic parousia. It is a veritable coming of Paul at the end of a drama. There is much more here than simply reading the lines of a linear narrative. The Apostle Paul is standing as if he were instead of Christ, as if he were assuming the role of Christ, as if the relationship between himself and Christ is so united and unique and intimate that his coming is as the coming of Christ. His substitution is as the substitution of Christ. His identification is as the identification of Christ. His plea is as the plea of Christ. Now you understand the profound nature of the apostles' relationship with the Lord Jesus. It is so profound that Paul will even border on the imagery of being himself a Christ figure without any violation of the creator-creature distinction. So wonderful is his joyful, delightful, passionate union with his Savior that he can present himself in the characterization of the Savior's drama. As I said in verse 22, 
a veritable apostolic parousia, because, in fact, Paul uses that language elsewhere in his epistles, I will come to you. It is almost as if in his coming, Christ himself comes. All right. The characterization of what Christ now is, we indicated that unique element in Christ's own personal characterization in this epistle. Characterization of what Christ now is enfolds Paul, Philemon, and Onesimus into that climactic plot narrative and its dramatic divine power. Do not lose sight of the power, the divine power of the Lord Jesus Christ and God his Father by the operation of the Holy Spirit in this epistle. Do not lose sight. This is what happens when God's power, God's power out of heaven, God's power through the Spirit, God's power through the Christ that now is, the Father's power through the Son by the Spirit, that power changes relationships, changes personalities, changes lives, changes hearts, changes churches. It is that power which is on display here in this epistle. All right, we'll take our break, and then we'll return to look at the basic structural outline. You'll notice it's labeled number one. There is a number two. All right, now. One of the elements that I like to present is the structure of a section or a chapter or a book. And Philemon presents us with a book-long challenge to structure. And tonight we'll begin with the simpler or more basic structural outline, which you have in front of you. I apologize for the size of the print, but nonetheless, I wanted to get this all on one page so that you could see the whole thing uh, fall out in front of you, not having to have two pages in your hands, so I reduced the font in order to make it fit. Now, what you will notice here as we go through this basic structural presentation is the symmetry, the symmetry of reciprocity, the symmetry of mutual identification, mutual participation. We have talked about the central in Christ feature of this letter. That in Christ motif has a reciprocal pattern. Being in Christ is Christ in you. That's a reciprocal pattern. So, this symmetry that we're looking at in terms of the structure of this letter enhances or underscores that reciprocity, that reciprocal 
in Christ, Christ in you pattern. Structural symmetry, theological imagery, theological reality. The epistle reflects the theological profundity of en Christo. Even its structure reflects the profundity of en Christo. So keep that in mind as we talk about the sections of this letter. And we notice how they reflect one another. They are symmetrically arranged. Right, now we begin with the aperture, which we will reciprocally contrast or relate to the closure. So what do I mean by aperture? The opening, okay? And the opening or the aperture to this epistle is in the first three verses. And you'll notice the little arrows below the one through three, which point to an arrow at the bottom of the page, which is pointing up towards that arrow at the top section. And that section matches the bottom section. The aperture matches the closure. Or we can label the first three verses aperture or greeting. We can label the last three verses, 23 to 25, closure or farewell. Notice the structure. The structure of verses 1 to 3, which we outlined in our opening presentation of this epistle several weeks ago, takes the form of a what? What do you see there? It is a chiasm. And what is the form of the closure? The aperture has a chiastic structure. What about the closure? It has a chiastic structure. All right, so this epistle has a chiastic opening and a chiastic closing. And that makes this epistle bound by a chiastic, go ahead, Marge, inclusio. Symmetry. Reciprocal symmetry at the beginning and the end. Reciprocal symmetry, which even highlights the Lord Jesus Christ. It is exactly the same at the opening and closure, at the aperture and closure of this remarkable letter. Randy? You keep coming back to this, even in the Zephaniah and everything, so i got to ask overall question about this. Mm-hmm. Are you implying that the Holy Spirit uses in chiasms and enthusiasm? Yes, I am. Okay. I think it is clear... In the text, and it is a part of conventions of the ancient world, both Assyrian, Babylonian, Egyptian, Hebrew, 
Greek and Roman. So it is a convention of literary and rhetorical style, which the Holy Spirit uses for his own glory. And it is a pattern which can be learned or taught. So you're learning a little bit about what Paul himself learned and the Holy Spirit used. All right, now you'll notice also at the opening and closure that there are a couple of other words there that are also duplicated, namely the word co-workers and the word grace. Significantly, those two words do not appear anywhere else in the letter, only at the beginning and the end. All right, so part one and part six, if we can number them that way, part one and part six are symmetrically, chiastically balanced, even to the point of the very same words. Now, the second part of this letter begins in verse 4, where if you notice the text, Paul says, I give thanks. It's the thanksgiving section of this epistle, and you'll notice that as Paul gives thanks, he expresses that thanks in his prayers for the Colossian Christians, for Philemon and the church in his house. Symmetry, verse 22. We have prayers again, but this time not thanksgiving, but supplication. The apostle is asking for the church's prayers for him, for Philemon and the church in his home to pray for me. The symmetry is precise, namely the prayers of the apostle for them at the beginning of the, of the epistle and at the end of the epistle, the prayers of the church for him. Reciprocal. I am praying for you. You, I ask to pray for me. Symmetry and symmetry of reciprocity. A mutuality of identification in prayer and supplication, thanksgiving and supplication. Now, off on the right-hand side after verse 4, you will notice how verses 5 to 7 have been outlined. What do you call that style of an outline? It's a chiasm again. All right. Now, notice that before verse 22, verses 19 to 21, they are also outlined. What style of an outline do you have there, verses 19 to 21? A chiasm again. All right. Now, notice what we have. After the Thanksgiving section of verse 4, We have a chiastic pattern in verses 5 to 7. The chiastic pattern of 5 to 7 succeeds Paul's prayer 
for the church. What about verses 19 to 21? It is a chiastic pattern, but it precedes what? Verse 22's prayer. So we have a chiastic pattern preceding their prayers for Paul. Chiastic element after the prayer section at the beginning, chiastic pattern before the prayer section at the end. Symmetry. Symmetry of structure. Reciprocal symmetry. All right, now, the body of this letter begins in verse 8. That verse does not appear on this structural outline, but I'm going to demonstrate that with the more detailed structural outline next time. However, I will give you that label. The body of the epistle extends from verses 8 to 18. Once again, within the body, verses 9 and 10 demonstrate a particular pattern. What pattern do you see in verse 9? And again, what pattern do you see in verse 10? Ben, you're our expert. What do you see there? Anyone? Repetition. Repetition? Repetition, yes. In what form? It's a chiasm again. However, there is a variation. You notice the word appeal in verse 9. So, verse 9 and 10 begin, I'm sorry, I meant 9 and 10. Verse 9 and 10 begin with the same word or contain the same word. What do we call a section which flows out of the same word? The same word begins a unit. Okay, that's an anaphora. A word which signals a unit which is going to enlarge. So, in verse 9, he talks about his appeal. In verse 10, he talks about his appeal again. And in between, in, in 9 and 10, in between 9 and the end of 10, he places a chiasm. Places two chiasms. Okay? So we have an anaphora that begins 9 and begins 10. And then we have a chiasm, two chiasms, one in 9 and one in 10. And then we have in these chiasms a mimesis. What's mimesis mean? It's a Greek word for imitation. We have in verses 9 and 10 an anaphoric chiastic mimesis. All right, now that's a mouthful. What do I mean by that? 
I've explained the anaphora in the word appeal. It occurs in verse 9 and again in verse 10. You see the chiasm in verse 9. It moves between Paul and Christ Jesus, the aged and prisoner, and the key point of the chiasm, the now time. In verse 10, you see the word appeal, the anaphora again. Then you see the chiasm. My child, my imprisonment with Onesimus, and then in between sandwich the key point I have begotten or did beget. Now, the mimesis here is the mirror. If understanding mimesis as a mirror imitation helps you, then that's the easy way to remember the significance of it. What do I mean by a mirror? Look at the chiasm in verse 9. After the word appeal, you have Paul. Who is he mirrored in? Christ Jesus. Who is Christ Jesus mirrored in? Paul. Very good. All right. So that's the mimetic pattern. Okay. He is mirrored in Christ and Christ is mirrored in him. All right. Now, what's the relationship between the aged or old one and the prisoner? Same person, but a mirror relationship. Okay? He is an aged person, and he is an imprisoned person. And when has this occurred? It has occurred now. So the apostle, as a prisoner, an aged, now in Christ Jesus, mirrored, even though he is an old man imprisoned in Rome. All right, now let's look at the same pattern. Let's look at mimesis in verse 10. What's the mimetic mirror? The mirror between my child and my imprisonment. Namely, the child Onesimus is mirrored in the one who is imprisoned with Onesimus. There's the mirror reflection. Paul in the child, the child in Paul, whom Paul says he has begotten. All right, now, why is Paul structuring these verses in this mimetic, chiastic, anaphoric style? Because he's inviting Philemon into the mirror. He's inviting Philemon into the relationship. He wants Philemon to see himself as Paul sees himself in verse 9. In the mirror of being in Christ Jesus. Perhaps even as an old man. What's Paul doing in verse 10? He is inviting Philemon to see himself in the mirror. He, Philemon, is a child begotten of Paul, even as Onesimus is a child begotten of Paul. It is a mirror relationship. It is a reciprocal, reciprocal paradigm. It is structured to show Philemon, look, you're standing in the same relationship I am, both with respect to the Lord Jesus Christ 
even though I am in prison and you are free in Colossae, and with respect to Onesimus. I have begotten him in prison. You were begotten by me in freedom. But you are in the same mimetic mirror. All right, so, the basic structure of this epistle moves by way of chiastic elaboration. And wherever you have a chiasm, you have a mirror paradigm. You are looking symmetrically. You are viewing reciprocally. You are understanding mutually. All right, any questions about that basic outline? I want to say a few more things about it in closing, but do you have any questions about the labels or about my explanation to date? Scott, you've got your hand halfway up. Are you a man halfway between two options? Because I'm looking at those chiasms and saying, you know, that makes sense in terms of the structure of the way people used to write. But, for instance, agent and prisoner together because they're both adjectives and so forth. Uh, is, is this kind of mimetic chiasm? Is that something you see in other literature? Have other people written about this? Or is this something you're just observing yourself? I do. Auerbach, Eric Auerbach does. Yeah, he's written a book on mimesis. That's the title of the book. And it's got, he's got chiastic mimesis. Not as detailed as this, no. Okay. I'm not questioning it. It sounds right. I just want to, I'm just like, I'd like to see this fleshed out more. Yeah, well, uh, well, Auerbach's article on figural interpretation in that book, Mimesis, is, is the article that launches this whole uh, movement in literature. And uh, you look at your literature handbooks now, all this mimetic imitation is being traced in uh, literary categories or in great novels and so on. And writers, uh, the, new, the new narrative critics are looking at old literature in this way. So it is a, it's a standard, emerging standard paradigm, and I'm borrowing it and applying it to the scriptures wherever I see it. Eric Auerbach, yes. 20th century. Is he dead? He's dead now. Yes, he's also impacted, impacted a patristic scholar named John David Dawson, who's written a book called Christian Figural Interpretation, which is another very important book. He takes on Hans Frey. He demolishes Hans Frey in that book. Yes. You have a question? I have a question. In verse 9, Yeah, I left out the also, but I'm I'm tracing the order of the words in the Greek text. Okay, so aged comes, and then the now word comes, and then prisoner comes, and I'm I'm suggesting that that's a chiastic mirror. Yeah, well, a mirror can reflect both ways. It can reflect from Christ to Paul and from Paul to Christ. So he orders it from himself to Christ, but you could reverse it. Because the mirror of Paul in this chiasm is Christ Jesus. 
So if you just had Christ, Paul and Christ Jesus, that would be a mirror in itself. Either way, from Christ to Paul, Paul to Christ. Same way with aged and old. From aged to prisoner, from prisoner to the aged old one. Does that make sense? Okay. Yes, sir. Uh, 9 and 16. Number 9, you have love all the more. And then there's a parenthesis. I take it that's the Hebrew. That's the Greek. Greek, sorry. And then 16, love beloved all the more. Also Greek in, in the little... Right. That Greek word, malone, it's pronounced malone, means more. So that's a, that is a signal that there is a relationship between those two verses. But they are part of a larger section of the body of this epistle. And I will, I'll have to flesh that out next time when I have more time to show you a larger outline. <clears throat> this, is, this is a smaller introductory outline. <clears throat> but I have a much larger two-page outline that we'll, we'll take on next time. All right, now a few closing comments on what we've seen here. You have in front of your eyes a symmetry of reflection, a symmetry of reflection and identification. Synonym for identification, participation. Synonym for identification and participation, joint union. The parallel or reflective structural images is a reflection of the message of this book. In fact, this structure, in terms of its symmetrical parallelism, underscores the message of Paul in this letter that in Christ... Mimetic or reflexive life patterns are featured. For instance, in Christ, Philemon is joined to the symmetry that defines all union with Christ. His life in Christ, Christ's life in him. In Christ, Onesimus is joined to the symmetry that defines all union with Christ. His, Onesimus' life in Christ, Christ's life in Onesimus. And in Christ, Paul is joined to the symmetry that defines all union with Christ. Paul's life in Christ, Christ's life in Paul. The use of the chiasms in this epistle underscores and elaborates this symmetry. The mirror aspect of chiasms, the corresponding reflex feature of chiasms. It places one character in relation, one character in symmetrical relation with another character and places all characters supremely in relation to one another and to the supreme character who is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a masterpiece of construction. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it is a masterpiece which presses Philemon and Onesimus and Paul and that church in Colossae into the life of Christ, mimetically, by way of reciprocal participation and identification. This is an abstraction. This is in bare catechism. This is life, life in the Lord Jesus Christ.
and this structure dramatizes it, this structure portrays it, this structure symmetrically reinforces it, and this structure tells you the story of the letter. Any final questions or comments? Well, we finally got warmed up, so let's close in prayer. <laughs> we are amazed, O oh Lord, at the remarkable gift of the Apostle Paul, enhanced by the working of the Spirit upon his mind and pen. And we are amazed at how artfully and wonderfully he has crafted this in-Christ paradigm. May that crafting shape our life in Christ. And may we reciprocally show the effects of it in the life of the church, in the life of believers who are part of the body of Christ. May it please you, O Lord Jesus, having drawn us into relationship and into your life, may it please you to allow our life to show forth your life to a dark and unbelieving world. We pray this in your blessed name, O Lord. Amen.